Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast, both to returning listeners and a warm welcome to new listeners. I get statistics about the location of the various listeners to this podcast, and I am delighted and very much honored when I see that countries outside the United States have people that are paying me the honor of listening to this podcast. That is just wonderful. We have been speaking of Milton's Paradise Lost for the last several weeks, and we have arrived at book three, which is a sudden change. The word change is in fact a leitmotif word in Paradise Lost. It chimes like a bell all the way through the epic from beginning to end. I pointed out its occurrence multiple times in the first two books in Hell, where Satan remarks mournfully about the change, how changed he and the other fallen angels are now that they have fallen into hell and on their, are on their way to becoming the devils, losing their beauty and regretting without repenting. We now enter book three and another change. Milton is remarkable in the way he manages dramatic transitions, his sense of timing, of pacing, of changing from one thing to another, often to the direct opposite, as here. After two books in the darkness visible, famous phrase, of hell, we now pass blinking our eyes at the sudden light of the spirit in heaven. The invocation to book three we have dealt with at length last time, the deeply moving invocation to God as light, the blind poet calling upon the light that is within, since both the world and God himself are shut out externally. Then we move to something quite different, and that is dramatization again of God in heaven. It is daring enough to attempt a portrait of Satan, but to actually portray God as a dramatic character in an epic is a daunting task. Dante, in a way, you could say, avoided it. He presented his vision of God in the very final cantos of the Paradiso entirely symbolically, which avoided certain problems that Milton collides with head-on in Book 3. I think it's fair to say that Book 3 has been regarded by both common readers and certainly by the scholars as one of the most problematic moments in Paradise Lost. There is a problem 
with Milton's God, whom we find after the invocation, sitting on his throne in heaven, absolving himself of everything that he has seen because he is seeing everything. He has seen the revolt in heaven. He has seen the devil's fall into hell. He has seen Satan leave hell again and wend his way towards the earth, hoping to make mischief in revenge for his defeat in battle. And he sees more than that. God the Father sees not only the past and present, he sees the future as well. He has foreknowledge of what will happen, that Satan will make trouble and will cause Adam and Eve to fall as well. And he justifies himself. He lays the blame entirely upon Adam and Eve and not upon himself. In terms of doctrine, he's absolutely correct. And one of the difficulties here and elsewhere in Paradise Lost is that Milton sometimes gets blamed for things that are at least in one way not his fault because some of the notorious passages in Milton, both about his theology and his sexism, are when Milton is virtually quoting from scripture or at least following the orthodox position closely. That doesn't mean that we can't object to the orthodox position, but what we should not do is blame Milton for things that he is simply repeating and attempting to liberalize as much as he can. We can still dislike the positions. I'm not saying we have to accept everything that Milton says by any means but to understand that in some ways he is between a rock and a hard place. He simply cannot ignore the orthodox position. He cannot ignore the standard doctrine. He does what he can to liberalize it, even to come close to transforming it. And that's what I'd really like to take a look at. At this moment in book three, we get a lot of conceptual talk, a lot of ideas. It is not one of the more dramatized parts of the epic. And I hope I don't bore people going into the ideas about the fall and guilt and free will and responsibility here. But I do have a certain amount of confidence based on many years of teaching Milton that a lot of listeners may very well be, as my students have always been, quite interested in these ideas. They don't find it boring at all to delve into these issues. If only because in the United States, at least, commonly people are never explained to. They never have these issues brought up. They simply grow up within whatever church 
that they may have grown up in, in their family, and the ideas behind their religion have never been made clear, not even in church, not even in sermons, where moral issues may be dramatized by sermons, but theological ones, not that they can really be totally separated, of course, but the more conceptual and theological issues tend not to be raised, partly because they are conceptual, partly because they also are risky. There are some real difficulties here, and the difficulties are not all just Milton and his way of thinking. Some of them are endemic to Christian doctrine. It has been very gratifying over the years teaching college-age students who have reached the point of maturity where they want to think about their religion and the basis of their belief for the first time, rather than simply accepting what they were told as they did when they were children. And I hope that there is a certain amount of conceptual excitement here in this discussion as well. I never talk ideas just to talk ideas. I always want to bring it down to what's at stake for us. What's at stake not just for Adam and Eve, but what is at stake for the human race within the perspective of Christian belief. That said, as I began to say before, the speeches of God the Father here, which lay out the orthodox position about the fall and who is to blame for the fall and why, they are faultlessly expounded, and yet they don't come off well dramatically. Make of that what we will. It is one thing for us to read an exoneration of God the Father, who takes no blame whatsoever for this. It is another thing to have a dramatic character named God the Father sit there and absolve himself dramatically, it doesn't come off well. And this is not simply my reaction. This is, I wouldn't say a standard reaction, but it's a common enough one that he comes off sounding to someone in the United States, perhaps, a little like Richard Nixon saying, I am not a crook. It comes off as detached, as self-righteous, as a little bit inhuman. Again, I'm not telling listeners how they should respond, but simply reporting on the response history, what's sometimes called the reception history of this part of the text. But let's look at it step by step, and then people can decide for themselves what they are going to commit to and how they are going to judge. It opens after the invocation with God beholding Satan around line 78 from his prospect high, where in past, present, future he beholds, and thus to his only son 
foreseeing spake. Even as he speaks, he is seeing the future. This is an article of doctrine that has been more or less standard since Boethius back in the Middle Ages, centuries before Milton, that time to God is actually eternity in which he experiences past, present, and future simultaneously rather than sequentially as we do. So God is foreseeing even as he speaks. He is looking at Satan headed for earth to make trouble, to pervert God's work, and quite simply admits in line 92, and shall pervert. For man will hearken to his glozing lies and easily transgress the sole command, sole pledge of his obedience. So will fall he and his faithless progeny, whose fault, whose but his own. Ingrate, he had of me all he could have. I made him just and right, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. That resonant, memorable, and quite famous line sums up Milton's version of the standard version of the fall of man, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. Whose fault? Theirs. It's in future tense, but they will fall, and the fault will be theirs. They are sufficient to have stood. I gave them free will. And on top of that, he goes on to say, in, beyond the passage that I read, I not only did that, but I gave them reason, the power of reason to understand the difference between the choices that they would have to make. What pleasure I from such obedience paid when will and reason, reason also is choice. Reason also is choice. That is the line that is echoed from Milton's earlier pamphlet, Areopagitica, his prose work, magnificent work that is, I sometimes think, as much worth reading to, for everyone, not just scholars, as Paradise Lost, and certainly casts enormous light on the issues of Paradise Lost if you do go back and read it. Reason is but choosing, Milton says in Areopagitica. Here, reason also is choice. It's the same slightly reworded sentence. I gave them reason. I gave them free will and the power to know the difference. And he can and will go on to say, I also warned them they were not blindsided, as we will see. The angel Raphael is sent down by God to take multiple books of an epic to explain exactly that they are about to be attacked and tempted by this evil figure, Satan, 
and here's who he is, and here is why he is evil, and why you should not listen to him. So they have no excuse whatsoever, which all sounds so far straightforward, fair enough. The problem is that that does not take into consideration the counterbalancing other side of Christian doctrine, which is called predestination. If you are a longtime listener to this podcast and have been, listened to our discussion of Dante's Divine Comedy, we have already met and discussed the same issue in Dante, who also found it difficult, if not outright intractable, and did what he could with it, because neither the Roman Catholic epic poet nor the radical Protestant poet can escape the difficulty here. Predestination. This comes from the New Testament. This is not some article of church tradition like the doctrine of purgatory, for example. It's not really in the Bible, but the church, at least Milton would have said, more or less invented it for purposes of its own. This is in Paul's epistle or letter to the Romans, chapters 8 and 9, in which Paul says that God controls everything. There is nothing in the entire universe that is not a result of the will of God. Free will is, in fact, a logical problem in Christianity because if it were truly free, as God seems to be claiming here, then there would be something that happens in the world that God did not control and make happen. And that is unacceptable. It's especially unacceptable if you extrapolate from that if humanity had totally free will without predestination and used its reason to choose the good, that isn't Christian redemption anymore. That's the position of Socrates and Plato, that we use the power of reason and basically save ourselves. The standard way of putting it, and God the Father is putting it in that standard way here, passage by passage, God foreknows. He has just gotten done saying that he foreknows. And in another crucial passage, line 116 and 17, he reiterates, if I foreknew, foreknowledge had no influence on their fault. If I know ahead of time this will happen, that's not the same as saying I make it happen. If I see a train coming down a track and see that it will hit, I can predict reliably that it will hit a car that's stalled on the tracks, that doesn't mean I made it to happen, at least for most of us, of course, because we are not all powerful. But to foreknow something God is claiming is not the same as making it happen. 
already we're starting to feel that the, the ground is a little bit shakier than it was just a moment ago. Paul takes this a great deal further in Romans 8 and 9. The doctrine that Paul states, and he uses the word, at least in the King James translation and in many others, that people are predestined to be saved or to be damned even before they are born because salvation or damnation depends on God's grace. We cannot be saved except if God gives us grace. After the fall, we cannot even repent. Our hearts are hardened and we are incapable even of repenting and wanting to be saved unless God sends down grace to soften our stony hearts. For the damned, he withholds such grace. Why does he give it to some and withhold it to others? No one knows. In the Divine Comedy, in the Paradiso, Dante the character is troubled by this all the way up in the upper reaches of paradise and is told that even the angels don't know the answer to that question. And it, he is told basically to shut up and stop questioning. That comes off as a defensive bit of bluster, but it's all that Dante or any other poet, including Milton, can do because there is no answer to that. But if we are predestined even before we are born and are utterly dependent on God's grace, how can we also have free will? That again is simply another way of saying there is no answer to that. It's a paradox. It's an article of faith. Stop questioning. Milton is never willing simply to accept without questioning. One of the ringing passages of Areopagitica is the passage in which Milton says that if you simply hold your faith blindly and unthinkingly, even if you hold the correct doctrine, you are what he calls a heretic in the truth. Blind obedience to Milton is absolutely worthless. You must question. And yet, there is no easy answer. There is perhaps no answer that is not paradoxical. This is the most, in my opinion, intractable element of all of Christian belief. And I am not at all trying to be subversive or radical about this, but it is the troubling issue because the ramifications are enormous. It makes God responsible for all the suffering in the universe. And yet, we are the ones who are guilty and punished for it. Milton does not simply leave it at that. He does everything he can to make this doctrine more human, more comprehensible, 
to justify the ways of God to men. And we have to read this passage carefully to see in what way he is doing that. First of all, the business of grace. God gives grace according to the strict party line, and Milton, being a Puritan, is surrounded by fellow Puritans who adopted their theology mostly. Puritan theology was an adaptation of Calvinist theology, and Calvinism is the hard line about predestination. It is the one that most talks about there are the elect who have been given God's grace, and there are the damned who are not. This traveled all the way to America and is dramatized in stories like Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, Young Goodman Brown, always looking for signs of who is elect and who is not in the world. Milton, however, radically revises the Calvinist position in ways that probably would not have been acceptable to more orthodox Calvinists or Puritans. What he says, and he says it in this passage, in the mouth of God, whatever we think of God, he begins, God the Father begins by saying in line 172, man shall not quite be lost, but saved who will, yet not of will in him, but grace in me. <laughs> Immediately from one line to the next, he gives it and then he takes it back again. Saved who will, yet not of will in him. Aren't you contradicting yourself, God the Father, but so it be. Down further in the passage, it gets a lot more tolerable from a logical perspective. Here's the passage, and then I will try to disentangle it a little. Around line 183, God says, Some I have chosen of peculiar grace, elect above the rest, so is my will. The rest shall hear me call, and oft be warned of their sinful state, and to appease betimes the incensed deity, while offered grace invites. For I will clear their senses dark, what may suffice and soften stony hearts to pray, repent, and bring obedience due. What God is saying is, okay, everybody gets enough grace to be saved. That is not standard predestination. That is Milton's rather daring way of softening it. Peculiar grace goes beyond that, but everybody gets sufficient grace to clear their senses, stop, soften their stony hearts, to repent if they choose. So we do have free will, even though I have chosen some to give peculiar extra grace, elect above the rest, such is my will, and don't question it because I'm not telling why. So Milton is trying to make 
predestination into a doctrine that would indeed be fair. We all could be saved, but God is like a teacher who plays favorites for reasons of his own and gives some people extra credit. Don't ask, don't tell. But still, it's our fault in this way of looking at it. Now, that may seem fair enough insofar as it goes, but there are still problems. And we keep, again, I try to pursue it step by step so it doesn't become a labyrinth and it's still anchored in some fairly concrete issues here. There's still a problem. God still made the human race. And as he was making Adam and Eve, he knew they would fall. There are two problems, putting it from the point of view of a devil's advocate. There are two problems. If you knew that and you are truly all-powerful and all-knowing, why did you not create two creatures who would be perfect and upright and have free will and not fall? I mean, you knew if a manufacturer builds a model of something that has some sort of flaw in it and knows that and puts it out on the market anyway, the manufacturer is responsible. But that leads to the second level of problem that Adam and Eve did not have a manufacturer's flaw. This is not a case of needing 2.0 before we even release 1.0. They were perfect. So why would they have chosen evil? Yes, they were in part deceived by Satan, but they had no reason to be deceived. They knew, as we will see, they knew perfectly well that what they were doing was evil. Why did they give way to base impulses and choose the wrong? That is also true of Satan himself. Where? did the evil come from? Not from God, certainly, but if they were perfect, why should they ever have fallen, either Satan or Adam and Eve? So there are difficulties beyond that position. And then, once they do fall, there is yet a further difficulty because, and then, again, this is not Milton, this is Christian doctrine. There must be punishment. There must be what theology calls the doctrine of the atonement. They transgressed, and the transgression was against God himself, and they must pay for this. Around line 210, God at his worst here. This is what I mean by God may be theologically correct and faultless conceptually, but he does not come off well. Die he, meaning humanity, or justice must, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. There's got to be punishment for this. Die he, die the human race, 
or justice must. And if not the human race, somebody else has got to do this. And actually, in the full unfolding of Christian doctrine, it has to be someone else because we cannot atone as limited beings for an offense that is basically infinite because it's against God. If the son had not spoken up and volunteered to go down and atone guiltlessly be put to death, God's only son be put to death in this horrible way for the sake of justice. Why is that justice? I am not again saying the right answer here, but I would like by the end of our time today to have laid out what the questions are that everyone has to decide for themselves about Christian commitment. Is that God is supposed to be love? And yes, it's true to say that love can't just be spineless. You can't, God can't act like a spoiled parent and spoil the children without ever disciplining them. And yet, when we think of the hideous suffering of human history, much of it falling upon people who have not transgressed, the suffering of the innocent, that is the difficult issue. The name for it in theology is theodicy, the issue of the suffering of the innocent and of God's responsibility or lack thereof. I will give one example to put up against the speech I just read by God. In Shakespeare's King Lear, Lear spends most of the play being irresponsible, irascible, merciless, to the point of being almost a monster, and most of all, to the best person in the play, his good daughter, Cordelia. He has spoiled his other two daughters, Goneril and Regan, with the result that they come off being self-centered, power-seeking monsters and have mistreated him brutally by the end of the play. And finally, towards the end, Lear comes around and sees what he has done and repents it and meets Cordelia again and says, your sisters had no cause to hate me and do anyway. Thou hast some cause. And Cordelia replies, no cause, no cause. I do not blame you, no cause. That's love. And it whatever theologically may be correct, it puts to shame as a character. I'm not so much criticizing God as a dramatic character who is labeled God in an epic. But God does not come off well in the face of Cordelia's no cause, no cause. There has to be an atonement. Somebody, heads have got a role here, and the son will go on to volunteer, 
and everybody is very happy about that. But those are the issues, and as I say, they are not unique to Milton. He is doing what he can to soften them. But having them come out of the mouth of a self-justifying God is a moment of dramatic weakness. We lose sympathy. Now, that could be deliberate. I would urge us to withhold total judgment. I've done my best to make God sound bad here, but for next week and weeks thereafter, we should withhold total judgment because Milton is amazing at reversing apparent perspectives. Right now, Satan looks a lot more noble than God. We'll see if we continue to think that as we go on next week and thereafter. Mm -hmm.